like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. If you have a laser device for training and you want to take it to the next level, or if you're looking to get into using a laser device for training, check out the products at laserapp.com. L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. You can use code CSP2021 for 15% off the items you've selected. And thanks for checking them out. Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast. This week you get me and only me. The other two can't make it, so you're just going to get me and a guest. And as usual, we have a guest. This week our guest is a little different than what we would normally have. We're going to branch off into the world of rifle shooting and not stick with pistol this week. And my guest and I share a few commonalities, which we'll get into and you'll learn during the, the podcast. With that being said, let's bring him in and let's welcome Philip Vallejo to the Casual Shooters Podcast. How are you doing, Phil? Hey, buddy. How are you? Thanks for having me I'm on here. Well, thanks for being on. Greatly appreciate it. So take a minute, if you would, and go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah. So uh, my name is uh, Philip Vallejo. Uh, I'm a former Marine Corps um, scout sniper. spent uh, 11 years in the Marine Corps, uh, all of which I spent in the uh, scout sniper community. Uh what we would consider our community is stay baby. Um, spent my time at uh, Camp Pendleton, California in uh, first battalion, fourth Marines uh, for eight years. I did four uh, deployments with them. Uh, one of them being a combat deployment um, to Iraq. And then um, after that, it was obviously time to go. And then uh, my last three years uh, of my service, I spent um, down at uh, first Mardiv, uh Camp Pendleton uh, scout sniper schoolhouse making and training Marine Corps scout snipers. Um, got out in 2018 and uh, landed a job at Gunworks, uh, training their long range, um, hunting curriculum. Uh, it's it really nice. It was really nice to get into the, uh, the crowd of, um, you know, the, the hunting side, the four legged creator aspect, but, uh, deep down inside my, my heart still wanted to relate and, and train those were, that were hunting two legged critters. Uh, so Kaylin and I, uh, not only started a podcast, but, uh, started up uh, a company called modern day sniper. And now we focus on um, military law enforcement, long range training, as well as civilian. Um, and then obviously on the side, I am a um, national uh, precision rifle competitor to, you know, upkeep with uh, the relevancy of precision rifle shooting. Very nice. And we'll get into all that. Once you get that in your blood, it's kind of hard to get it out. It is. Yeah. yeah. I keep going. I keep going back to it and back to it. Um, just real quick. Uh, when I got out, I was actually in the business of training people as well. Okay. Did that for a couple of years and then changed career paths. Um, so Phil, what we normally do is we ask uh, some personal questions right off the bat to get to know our guest. Okay. So I've got a few questions for you. The first one, your favorite movie. Ooh, my favorite movie. It's a toss up between uh, tombstone and last of the Mohicans. Ooh, yeah. Good. Two good choices. Yeah, I like uh, it. I, I would say more or less it's uh, Tombstone followed up by Last of the Mohicans. Mainly because okay. I can probably quote a lot more with Tombstone than I, than I can with uh, Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> yeah, very good movie. Your favorite book? Ooh, my favorite book. Um, I would say one of my favorite books right now is uh, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. Um that's uh you know 
uh, one of the ones that I've just read probably in the last year or two. And um, I've often thumped through it um, every now and then. What's it, uh, what's it about? Uh, Jocko Willink is a, a former uh, Navy SEAL commander, and uh, he just talks about um, kind of his uh, relating his experiences as a, a Navy SEAL commander um, uh, in his combat deployment to kind of like a real world application for businesses and, you know, leadership taking extreme ownership uh, when they do fail and stuff like that. Uh, it's very much like a leadership and accountability book. Okay. Your favorite superhero? Oof. I want to say it's, it's got to be Superman. Okay. Yeah. Any particular reason? Uh, just the ability to fly. I'm sure that's, I mean, and, and pretty much be bulletproof. I'm, I'm sure kryptonite still sucks, but, you know, not too much kryptonite uh, flying around. Right. But otherwise, he's indestructible. That's right. All right. Your favorite historical figure? Oh, favorite historical figure. Um, you know, I, I, I go in waves, but I would say I gravitate uh, toward Greek mythology a lot. Uh, so I want to say kind of, you know, um, just in what I see with movies, but I'd say like, like Zeus would be like the very first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Again, another all powerful figure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's pretty generic. <laughs> yeah. Now, if money were no option, which rifle, rifle caliber, and optic would you choose? Oh. Um if if it was just a one and done gun, the one rifle that I had to, you know. I would say um I would say a actually international chambered in um, 308 uh, slinging 175 CR match Kings with a 24 inch barrel topped with a top with a Collis K 525 I and um, suppressed. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be my, uh, my, my ticket. And the reason why is because I mean, if, if that was the only rifle that I had, I mean, that, that barrel, I mean, it's going to take a while to shoot 10,000. I mean, even, even then, you know, it's been a while since I've burnt out a 308 barrel. So yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm I'm a guess, big fan of the 308. And I'm guessing with an accuracy international barrel, you're probably going to get, you might get closer to 12 grand on that one. Yeah. Yeah. They, they so. put some pretty good barrels on there. It's funny you said accuracy international, because that would be, that would also be the brand of rifle that I would choose. Um, I would also choose a three to a five to 25, but I would do a, I think I would do a six, five Creed. I just like okay. the ballistics on it better than the 308. You know, it's funny. It's a tricky question. Cause if you ever look at my, a lot of my posts, like I'm a, I'm a big six, five Creed more fanboy, Um, just because of the well-roundedness of the cartridge. Um, but just because of just the sheer fact of, you know, barrel life you know um and like you know shit hits the fan scenario right uh I'm, I'm more likely to use the 308 a lot longer than a 65. well and i would still say that you have a better chance of finding ammo for 308 than a 65 
as much as six five has become mainstream, yeah, I still three oh eight's been around a lot longer. It has. I mean, you can find it in people's garages, you know. So yeah, exactly. And then you know, with with that, you just I mean, within at least 10, 12 round, 10, 15 rounds, be able to figure out, you know, what kind of trajectory it's getting with it, with, with, uh, not only today's technology, but just someone that just understands how to essentially map out, um, the firing solution from a, uh, from a rifle. Right. All right. So since you said that, I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead to a question that I had, I was going to ask later, but since you're talking about mapping them out, what ballistic calculator do you use and why? So I use the Hornady four degree of freedom software right now. Um, it's free. Uh, I like it not only because it's the fact that it's free. I'm a huge fan of the user interface. Uh, I think the user interface is probably one of the cleanest out there, super easy to use. Um, and then to be able to, um, essentially map out or get your range card with ease and uh, validate or true your trajectory to make sure your software is lining up with your your rifle um, they have a thing called axial form factor and honestly I've, I've with the bullets inside the profile i've had you know first round impacts out to a mile without even adjusting anything and obviously that's a lot with using their bullets or the bullets that are in there so the only thing that's tricky for guys when i do teach um when they don't have a bullet inside the library, um, you know, we have to use a, a BC calculator, but it's still fine. But I think it's for sure uh, one of the one of the uh, the best solvers out there, in my opinion. Yeah, I've not used their app, but I've used it on their website and I like it a lot. It's very good. Um, they actually have a lot of information on their website oh. in general, which I like now. So is a mile the farthest you've shot? No, the, the furthest I've shot was actually in the Marine Corps was, uh, with our 50 cals. Um, it was 2,400. It was just a, um, it was just a, a live fire training exercise. Um, we, we had a uh, 50 cal day and we had, um, you know, mock tanks um, out to a little bit over a mile and a half. And at that point, we were just kind of walking it in. And uh, after about probably like six or seven rounds of, of getting this thing walked in, uh, I put two on target. Um, so that was fun. My, my claim to fame when I was at the schoolhouse at Quantico is one shot offhand. I hit a tank at 2000 yards. Nice. With a 50? With, yeah, with the Barrett. Offhand. Nice. And uh, I, I held the horizontal reticle line on the top of the tree line and pulled the trigger and hit it broadside. I was like, well, I don't know if I could ever do that again. That was just a lucky guess for that a holdover. Just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was swagged it the best I could. You yeah, know, I, it's funny that it's funny that you say that, um, you know, extreme long range, when you look at it, like just as at face value, you're like, oh man, you're just kind of in the prone shooting at distances. And obviously when you send like as many rounds down range, obviously you're going to connect. But like when you do connect, it's such a great feeling. Like I, I enjoy shooting extended to extreme long ranges. I, I consider like the threshold of a thousand to a mile, not really extreme just because there's cartridges out there that are easily pushing the, you know, hitting those limits, even with a six, five. So like my, my definition of extreme long range and guys that do it consistently is like a mile plus. 
That, that's definitely extreme. Yeah. So I imagine they're only shooting steel. Otherwise there's no way you're going to know where you're hitting. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a nice thing about shooting that Barrett was all we shot was Ralphus. So you could yeah. see your impact. So yep. it's always, it was always nice to shoot it at, uh, in low light too, just to really see it. Oh really yeah. The effects of low, uh, of the Ralphus round. Yep. Yeah. So the, um, all right, I'll do another quick story here and give you an idea how old again I am. <laughs> Before we went live, I was telling uh, Phil just how old I am, how long ago it was that I was in the Marines and at the sniper school. But it was me, Gunny Morgan, I don't remember his first name, and J.W. Johnson. I don't know if you know him or have heard of him. Jared Johnson? We, no, J.W. Johnson. Okay. Um, but anyway... We all went to Aberdeen back in, I'm going to guess, 91, early 92. And we, out to 2,000 yards, shot a huge aircraft target made of steel um, to create the BDC for the urinal that was put on the Barretts. Wow, okay. And you could see the impact. And we would, when we would go down there, this target was so big and so heavy, it had a crank on the side. I forget how many thousands of tons it was, but you had to angle the target uh, at like a 30 degree angle when you were done shooting. So the wind wouldn't blow this, this thing over because they wouldn't be able to get it back upright. Oh, and uh, when the tungsten penetrators would hit, they would stick and you could see them sticking out of the steel when we would go down and check the target. It was pretty wild. That is pretty cool. That's, that's where I, sh I had a raccoon chase me and I jumped behind the Barrett and shot it at about 15 yards. <laughs> it's uh, I'm hoping that, you know, time will shield me from any criminal. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff at the schoolhouse that I, uh, you know, not, not too proud of. <laughs> that will remain unsaid. That's right. <laughs> All right. Now you, you said something in one of your podcasts that, um, I was curious about. So I want to jump into that real quick since we're talking these rifles and stuff. So first more div, you guys had your own armory as well. And you had your own school rifles. We did. Yes. Okay. Um, so that surprises me then because Kalen once said something about he didn't like the Unertles because they had so many problems with them, but we, we had just the opposite effect where, or experience, I should say, where, um, we had very few issues with them, but we also, like I said, Gunny Morgan, there was a, another guy who came in a corporal. We basically had our own optic um office as well so i'm i'm going to assume you guys didn't have anybody there to support the unertles well so when i went through i we were uh, graduated to schmitz and and i want to say because of kind of where kalen was at in the time frame of 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 sniping or at uh, of his career um the marine corps was ready to swap that optic out um mm, okay you know and you, you know how the, the marine corps gets and I, and I think that was the same thing that i was seeing with the schmitten benders even though they were they were great scopes i mean um you know i got them issued to me in 20 2007 and by the time i left for the schoolhouse we were finally 
finally entertaining the uh, Night Force 5 to 25. And, and at that point, I had so many issues with the uh, PM2s, uh, 3 to 12s, that, you know, um, it was hard to, uh, you know, talk good about them uh, in comparison with the other optics that were on the market at that point. Um, so, but yeah, and even the optics tech that we, uh, that we had, I mean, he was a, you know, 19 year old that just, you know, went through school. And I mean, there were issues with me because I was the uh, lead marksmanship instructor having to coordinate and making sure guns were ready with the armor. And so that they would, they would do, um, even though in between classes that they would to inspect the rifles, they'd take the optics out of the rings and then remount it. But the way that they remounted it and, and based off of their, uh, their manual, they put an RCO on the bridge rail and they, that's how they line the reticle up and, and level out the scope. Yeah. Yeah. And so like I'd, I'd have guys on zero day with issues because they're, you know, their guns are, you know, they're straight up and down, but their reticles off at like a, you know, not like a 45 degree angle, but it's a noticeable, like at least three to five degrees. And I'm like, Wow. You know, so what ended up happening is that, you know, um, right before uh, school picked up, me and my assistant, a martial gym instructor would go out and we would um, mount the optics ourselves, which would be an all day event. Good Lord. So I guess that's something you had to plan for before every class then. It, it, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, uh, um, after every class the uh, I remember LTI PFI, all the guns had to get LTI PFI'd. Uh, in between courses to make sure um, they're still obviously working well. Um, and then, you know, if not, then we down a gun and then a new one gets sent in uh, stuff like that. So we typically had about uh, uh, 40 guns um, that gave us a little bit of extra wiggle room. Uh, Cause the only uh, amount of students that we'd pick up at one time is 32. Okay. Yeah. And what was the, um, when you were there, what was the, well, let me back up a couple of questions here. One, I noticed also, you just said it here and you said it in your podcast that you were the marksmanship instructor. It was. Did, did other people go down, did other instructors go down to the range as well? Yeah. Other instructors went down with, with us, especially when it came down to like the first couple of weeks. Um, just because what we did was we assigned to ensure that the students instructor ratio was pretty good. But then as um, I would say after like prac app three or prac app four, I would have the students with myself and maybe an assistant and then uh, one more um, so that uh, I could, I, I didn't have to worry about being the RSO or OIC. I could just focus on teaching the students. But um, as a primary marksmanship instructor, all the instructors kind of, during that specific part of the, the, uh, schoolhouse, all the instructors would not answer to me, but they would ask me, Hey, what did you pass the students? Or what are the students working on and stuff like that? Okay. We, um, we had assigned, depending on how many people we had, uh, the most we ever took in was 24. That's what we were designed for. Um, and we had four instructors. So you'd have six students assigned to you. And, and when your students were on the line, you would be on the line with them, coaching them, uh, obviously uh, up until qual day. But up until then, you know, if they're having any issues, 
then those are your primary guys. So we were all responsible for our own guys for marksmanship and field craft and everything else. Interesting how the different, different schools do this. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So oh, I forgot what the other question was going to be, but it's all good. So you got out or you, you, you went in and when you went in, you didn't have any type of, uh, you didn't shoot guns or do anything like that before. Correct. That's right. Yeah. I, uh, I always say this, I, I fell into the cyber community on accident. So when you went to boot camp, um, I assume you called expert. I did. Okay. Um, and then I've, I've heard your story. It's very interesting how you fell into it. Um, but it's still kind of hazy as to what, how exactly did you volunteer for this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's a great question because everyone that doesn't really understand uh, our dynamic of how you get into a scout cyber unit, right? Like there's a process, uh, you know, in terms of like um, scores and qualifications and stuff like that. So uh, the backstory um, is obviously in, in boot camp. I got um, uh, expert. I was a first class PFT, and I had a GT score of like 110, uh, which are three main. Um, when you're looking at uh, from a book status, uh, uh, things that you ha a marine has to have uh, in order to even get uh, selected into uh, scout cyber school. It's just one of the you know things that um, I'm sure since when you went through. Uh, one of the um, uh, mandatory things that uh, the Marine has to um, show that he's capable of. Uh, so when I uh, became an 0311, I went down the, down the road and one four had just got back from Iraq. And unfortunately on that Iraq deployment, um, they were disbanded um, and the platoon was uh, just coming back from leave or the unit was just coming back from leave. And then the sergeant major found a platoon sergeant who was a drill instructor to essentially rebuild the scout cyber platoon, all that stuff. And essentially um, what they did was they pre-screened SRBs uh, prior to, and they just looked for people that were 0311s uh, and had high GT and physical fitness scores and uh, were already expert qual. So in theory, by the book, if, as long as I, um, was selected in the scout sniper platoon, I could go straight to sniper school because I had already um, hit all the prereqs to be able to go. So what was the GT requirement when you went? 100. Through? Okay. And just for everybody out there, that's just the general knowledge on the ASVAB, yep. your overall score. Okay. Now, when you, so which competitions do you shoot? Uh, so I started off in 2015 shooting precision rifle series. Cause that was the only one that was around. Um, started shooting locally. Uh, I found a, a local uh, club and team that shot, but West end gun club, just, uh, just like North of uh, Rancho, uh, Rancho Cucamonga um and like the riverside kind of 
um, like boundary there. And um, those guys, I shot there once a, once a, uh, once a month on the weekends. And then those guys um, turned me on to um, the precision rifle series. So that's when I started shooting uh, in 2015. And now uh, there's all these other leagues that not have stood up, but have already been around since then that I've kind of gravitated to. Um, so uh, everyone knows the PRS and then the NRL and then the new series this year that just stood up was the NRL Hunter, uh, which I really like. Uh, and I've shot uh, a Rifleman Teams Challenge where uh, Carl Taylor, do you know Carl Taylor? Uh, I he's do. A, um, he's a former 8541. Uh, I want to say Carl was either East Coast or obviously uh, East Coast or West Coast. I want to say he was the West Coast in like the late 80s. Sorry, Carl, if I'm dating you. Uh, but a super solid guy. He, he does the rifleman's team challenge up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, but really, really good. Um, and then the last is the guardian, which is a, a cool little shooting competition for, uh, for charity. Right. That one I'm familiar with now. I'm not familiar with the NR and now NRL is 22, correct? No, there's a NRL, like a regular series, like, um, like kind of like the PRS, just, I would say a lot of the focus is out West. Um, and then the NRL Hunter, which is a new series they started, which is kind of like a hunting format uh, where they give you classifications for rifle weight and cartridges. Um, so you've got a open light, open heavy, and then a factory division. Factory is um, the rifle has to weigh less than 12 pounds, but it, it has to be a, a factory rifle with no modifications um, that you can buy off the shelf. The only modification that you can do is um, obviously put an optic on it and whatever bipods, but you can't drill into the stock. Um, so let's say I bought like a Tika CTR. I have to use the existing uh, holes there to like mount a Picatinny rail or mount a Arca rail, um, but I can't drill into it. Um, and the, the rifle has to weigh under 12 pounds, um, which is pretty cool. Is that cool. including the optic? That's including the optic, yeah. Okay. Um, and then uh, open heavy or open light is uh, a rifle that weighs less than 12 pounds. Uh, that's with everything. And then a open heavy is everything from 12 to 16 pounds. Oh, so even it has an, a top end yeah. weight limit. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you, when you shoot those, so have you shot all of those? um i've shot all sure. of them yes yep okay now which of those is your favorite the nrl hunter right now is by far my favorite it's very um very similar to how uh um i mean to how practical shooters should be um shooting their um at long range you know uh, finding your target lazing it yourself and being able to come up with a firing solution to engage it um with a practical uh, you know, a uh, weight weighted rifle system. And I assume that's all under a time constraint. Yeah. Yeah. Under four minutes. Okay. Um, so for the NRL hunter, the way that, uh, you've got is, uh, three different, um, three different shooting scenarios. You've got, uh, so you, you come up completely blind. The range officer that's there, uh, tells you, Hey, this is your, uh, glassing point. And then you've got like a left and right, lateral limit markers that gives you, Hey, this is the furthest left that you'll be. This is the furthest right that you could potentially be. And then, um, 
you know, they tell you beforehand, okay, this is going to be uh, one position, but you have four targets. You're looking for four targets. And or this is two positions, you've got two targets, or you've got one target, but four different shooting positions. So those are the three types of uh, shooting engagements that you have. And then once you find it, you range it, and then you just shoot that specific order on the clock. Okay, so it's kind of like an observation exercise. It is. And, it an, is. Unknown, and an unknown distance shoot all wrapped together. All wrapped together. That's right. Now, what are the, um, I don't want to say the average distances but what would you say is the closest and farthest you've shot an nrl hunter uh the closest i've shot was like a prairie dog target at 250 i would say the average distance uh with tar with targets uh, with targets is about five to six hundred and then the furthest i've shot it was 1080 it was like a full-size deer target but the within the regulations they have to keep the targets within a thousand yards that was just a, the okay. one time occasion they pushed that to, to 1080 because of terrain. Okay. Now, when you say full size deer, what is it like the entire torso, like a, a silhouette shot of it? Or yeah, it was the entire torso with the with with antlers and everything. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. It was it was hung up by at least three T posts. Holy cow! That's a heavy one. Yeah. Yeah. How was the wind that day? I hope not too bad. No, it wasn't actually too bad. I think I, I remember that shot. I was holding probably close to um, five or six tenths, so no more than uh, five to five to eight miles an hour. Yeah, that's not bad. Okay. Yeah. And steady, yeah. I take it? Yeah, it was pretty consistent. Okay. Because that, that's the – I was shooting a match at Butler, which is in North Carolina. It's a National Guard match. And I was just in our ray because that's what they primarily have around. I have to drive three hours to get to that. And um, I shot a 199 with 11 one day. And the nine that I dropped, me and the guy beside me pulled the trigger a split second after the wind had just changed direction and pushed our oh. bullet out. Yeah, but. I didn't even know what happened. I was like, uh, wow, I called that good. And, and it was actually the score sitting behind me was like, yeah, you and the other guy got hit by a wind change right when you pulled your trigger. It was like, well, nothing I can do there. So, you know, that's, uh, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of times, uh, shooters ask, cause like, well, like, is it, is it, is it possible when, you know, a, a big, um, uh, I guess a, a big thing that you see, especially in the precision rifle series are guys coming off the line and they're like, Oh, I got wind screwed, you know, granted that, that, that it, it is a possibility, but if like another thing too, is obviously, you know, you, you want to also look at the shooter to see, okay, well, how, how well is that shooter even good off his belly? M meaning like if I gave, put that same size target, so let's say a two MOA target, at a hundred yards. So without the influence of wind, how many times do you think he'll be able to hit that two inch circle in a 90 second time limit? You know, that's a, that's a, yeah. that's a good thing that Kalen always says, like when you start blaming the wind, like, all right, do you think you can put all 10 rounds under a two, two MOA circle in 90 seconds from a standing position? It's, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty tough. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's real so. tough. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just glad the um, the score caught it because otherwise I I wouldn't have I would have assumed it was either me or the ammo. Yeah. So I got lucky there. So do you do you keep a data book? 
I, I actually don't anymore. I actually keep uh, more of like a, sh- I guess, shooter's journal. Um, data books is something that I did use to keep back in, back when I first started shooting, uh, coming up in the Marine Corps. Um, and even a little bit you know, on the competition side of the house, but I'd say I have so many, so many rifles now. I just strictly use, um, I rely, not rely on software, but, um, I have like these little makeshift dope cards, um, uh, for each rifle system. Okay. Now, what do you mean by a journal? Uh, so Kaylin and I, um, started, uh, this, uh, sh- like a shooter's journal where, um, you, you go out to the range and, um, you, when you go out to the range, you, you work on three to five critical tasks that you want to, um, accomplish. So let's say that I want to accomplish a rifle zero, um, chronoing the rifle and, you know, maybe a hundred, uh, hundred, you know, a hundred dot drills, 21 dot drill, and then maybe, you know, um, serve five rounds on wind calling and then 10 rounds on positional from the standing. So those are the five things that I need to get done before I can start messing around. It gives me a guided way to, um, you know, and then for each event. So let's say the rifle zero, I'm writing down some kind of data, like, Hey, this is how I felt, um, in terms of, you know, um, what's sustained and what I need to work on. So, uh, you know, a sustained for my rifle zero was, okay, I had good breathing. Um, my shot groups look good, but what I really need to work on is, you know, my recoil management. Cause I noticed that after every shot, I was, you know, coming high and off the target, like to where I, I wouldn't be able to keep that target in my field of view. So then I'd write that down. And then, um, you know, for, let's say moving on to the standing task, you know, um, let's say that I'd write down just times, Hey, this first time I executed it, I got it within, you know, um, 80 seconds and I barely hit a two MOA plate. So I need, means I need to slow down, um, something, something of that nature. So it almost sounds like, um, a Lanny Basham journal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. From, um, with winning in mind. Correct. All right. So what, when you go to these matches, what do you, do you already create your data card before you go? Uh, and I ask this because what is the, uh, backup plan? If for some reason your ballistic calculator failed or whatever you had failed, that's or a great you question. Have, uh, go ahead. That's a great question. Um, so, you know, the, the evolution of technology is so great to where, um, I, once you validate your trajectory in, in certain conditions, um, you know, you, you can, you can strictly run off of the data that it provides you out to a certain distance to where you start seeing a little bit of, uh, offset. Um, but generally speaking, because target distances are only out to a thousand, that's on average, um, maybe there's like one or two long range stage where you go out to like 12 or 1300. Um, once I validate and make sure my trajectory is good out to a thousand yards, what I'll do, and this is what's nice about the Hornady Ford off is on the bottom right corner, there's like a little range card function. And what I'll do is I'll create a range card, like a hard range card, um, in 20 yard increments from, um, a hundred yards to a thousand yards. Um, and what I do is to say I go to a stage and the stage is, oh, it's a 400 yard target. I'll run straight off my data board 
and I'll be like, okay, 400 yards is 1.6. I write that down or I dial it on my turret. And then, you know, that's all I'm referencing. But let's say that conditions change slightly um, from what my card is uh, set to, you know, let's say I set my card to like 60 degrees because that was going to be the average, but now I'm shooting, you know, high noon and uh, it's like 80, 90 degrees. And I now we're shooting the long range stage. Um, and I've got targets from 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, which is very common, especially out West. Um, what I'll do is I'll take real that real-time data, plug it into my firing solution, and then I'll actually pull my uh, firing solution from my solver. And that's the really only time that I ever use my solver in a competition for one stage. Okay. And what's the farthest east you've shot? Oof. Uh, the furthest east I've shot is Virginia. Uh, or North, uh, North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, the range called, uh, frontline defense ran by Paul Smith, a former army sniper. Good dude. That's the guardian series, right? Uh, he, he runs some PRS matches, but, um, he does run some guardian stuff there too. I've run, I've shot a PRS match there and a guardian match. Now you guys are going to be at pig river though, correct? We are. Yeah. Pig River also hosts matches out in Virginia. Um, I haven't shot any other national level matches, but they have a really, really great venue. Yeah, they are. I mean, I'm in Virginia, but I, they're in Virginia too, but they're as small as Virginia is. They're still three and a half hours away from where really? I really Yeah. Wow. They're way down at the border of North Carolina. So yeah, that's, what's interesting about, it. I was actually in, in, uh, I was just in, in um, North Carolina and I flew into Raleigh and we were driving down to, uh, Jacksonville and it took us like two and a half, three hours. Um, just because of the road system there is just so different than the, than the traffic's yep. compared to like out West, like, Hey, 120 miles, even though there's nothing between you and them, it's going to, it's like, it's going to take you two hours to get there. Right. One yeah, it takes you three, three hours flight. here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. It's crazy. As a matter of fact, they just started PRS recently at Quantico. Oh, I, Quantico. I saw that. I, I, yeah. I, um, I was getting messages from some of the guys that are still active duty there, um, asking if uh, um, to come out and shoot with them anytime they're out out east. Yeah, pretty interesting. It is, I, I, and, and I, I'm, I'm glad. Um, when I was at the Camp Pendleton Schoolhouse one of the things I did was try to start doing that in Pendleton, but it was tough um, because uh, it was very hard to, you know, get civilians, even, even Marines on base with their personal rifles. You know, that was always, um, mm -hmm. it was always a stretch with range control and, and stuff like that. And like, it's a, it's a lot of heavy lifting um, for the individual, but uh, a gunner that I know, Gunner Jones, he just retired, a super phenomenal Marine. And he's also a sniper. Um, he was our gunner when I was at the schoolhouse and um, he ended up uh, helping bridge that gap between uh, like the competition side of the house and bring in civilians um, and even Marines with their personals on base to, to shoot recreationally. Yeah. They just, um, they've been shooting USPSA pistol and other stuff. So the thing about the PRS I'm going to be in two weeks. I am having major Tim Hijack. He's the basically the team captain. He's in the teams fall under him at Quantico, him and two other shooters on the podcast. 
And one of the things I'm going to talk to him about is having been an instructor there, I know there are unknown distance ranges way out in training areas that border one of the counties where you don't, you literally don't have to go on base. You can yep. stay outside the base and just go through that gate. And why not have a PRS match at, yep. at one of these unknown distance ranges where people don't have to worry about trying to get into base, but it also opens up a whole lot more interesting situations because right now, as I understand it, they're shooting it on the thousand yard known distance range at Quantico. So that means they're just putting targets up in between all the different range yard lines. So I was kind of surprised when I was there, that place was manicured like a golf course. You know, they, you, there was no, beating up the ranges or anything. I was like, Ooh, every time a round hits in between the yard line, I can only imagine uh, what it's doing to the range. Yeah. So I think it'd be interesting though, to put them where we used to take our students yep. out to those ranges and be able to just set them up anywhere. Then you would, you would have to laze them or have a way to estimate that range. I think you're talking about range 11 um well, there's probably, have, it's probably it's probably different from the range that i remember when i went through advanced course was range 11 that's where we spent most of our time at they had a it had, and it also had like a little shoot tower from it but yeah out to a thousand yard uh not a thousand maybe like 890 9 950 it went it didn't hit the edge of the brush didn't the edge of the tree line started at about 950 that's where the furthest you can set set a target I would have to go back and figure out. I'm not sure range 11. That might be a newer one because they they did they created a whole mount facility and yep, some yep. other stuff since I was there. Um, but we used range seven and eight. Okay. And I think it was. I think eight is the one. It's we use it as a known distance, and I think it was a mortar range. That's the one where the tank was two thousand yards out. So. That that was the big one we used because you could drive out there, you could put stuff in place and lots of lots of variations. And the, the terrain was much more like this, not flat. So you'd be kind of like you almost like you'd be out west shooting where you could be pointing down for one target, up for another one. So it'd be interesting. So do you keep, um, like for me, I keep a data book. Um, plus I have all my stuff in a, on a, in an app that I use, but I also use gun books to record every time I shoot, how many rounds I fire through the barrel. Do you keep one of those as well? I do. I keep it in an Excel spreadsheet, um, on my phone, uh, that is, it's on, on, it's on Google so I can access it on all my devices. And uh, after I get done shooting, uh, I'll just update. I'll, I'll do the same kind of information from our gun book, date, uh, how many rounds I shot, the cumulative, uh, what round I shot. So like, let's say I'm doing reloads. I'll put, you know, 135s and I'll put, um, I'll put hand loads or HL. Um, and then uh, if I take muzzle velocity and then I will outline the blue, um, outline it in blue um if if that's when i cleaned it and i try to clean well, i'm sure we'll get into that question i've got to actually uh, plug my charger in real quick one second dave okay 
All right, we're good. Is your laptop dying? Yeah, I was. Um, <laughs> I forgot to plug it in. <laughs> I, I, it was. It was. It was already there. I just had to. I just had to pick it up. Right. So you said you you highlight in blue when you actually clean your gun. Yeah. So I'll highlight the 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 row in blue um, when I clean it. So that tells me the frequency of like when I cleaned it last. All right. Well, let's go ahead and go there now then, since you brought it up. How frequently do you clean? And not only that, but what do you use? Okay. Um, so I, I would say I've, I've, uh, to, to really answer the, this question in, in depth, because, you know, it's such a multifaceted question in, in today's world. Um, I think I've evolved my cleaning routine, uh, three or four times and it's always, uh, evolving. I think, um, the more people that I talk to or, or whatnot, uh, but um, when I first started, you know, as a Marine Corps scout sniper, I mean, I, whether we shot 20 rounds, 30 rounds, 100 rounds, I, sh I cleaned it after every range shoot um, that when back then we used hops um, and uh, super powerful stuff. I mean, stuff that you can't even put your nose over. Um, we would do uh, three wet, three dry, three wet, three dry um, of copper and, and powder. And then started to talk to the competitive shooters and stuff like that. When I got into the competition scene, they're like, Oh, you don't need to clean that often. That's crazy. You know, just clean every time that you, you realize that, you know, your groups are not good, as good as a hundred yards. I'm like, okay, that start, starts to make sense. But like the Marine in me couldn't, could not do that. Right. It was like, <laughs> it was like impossible yeah. to like let a gun go without cleaning. So, um, eventually what I would do is I would just clean probably every, you know, four or 500 rounds. And then, uh, my recent, so like what I clean, what I do now is I, my, my routine is every 200 to 250 rounds. Cause that's a cycle in between each competition. And the reason why I've gravitated to that is, um, talking to an F class shooter, um, name is Eric Cortina. The best way he put it is, um, do you ever let your truck go, you know, 10 or let's say 20,000 miles or uh, before you start hearing weird engine noises before you change oil? Um, and uh, I was like, okay, that, that makes sense. And then another thing too is a lot of times shooters, when they, they're like, oh, when, you're, when your groups start opening up at 100, well, one thing that I've learned about long range ballistics and, and, and the projectile is that a um, hundred yards is too close for that bullet to really see how it's being affected uh, through your bore until it starts to, uh, until you start going down range. And what I mean by that is um, I've seen it to where I've had really nice SDs where like my muzzle velocity extreme spread is like, you know, less than 10 feet per second, but I still have like at 800, 900, a pretty good vertical spread and that as is a result not to due to muzzle velocity but the projectile um essentially i'm um, having different bcs um or ballistic coefficients as a result of your bore condition does that make sense yep and so now i try to clean if i can i'll i'll i'll, I'll run a couple patches of 
And what I use right now is Bortec Eliminator uh, that cleans both copper and carbon. I'll clean um, after every 100 rounds. So if I'm at a two-day national level match, um, I'll zero on Friday with like 10 to 15 rounds, shoot like five rounds to confirm, make sure my trajectory is lining up. So 20 rounds there, leave it the way it is, shoot 100 rounds for day one, and then I'll clean it very lightly, maybe uh, three or four wet patches and then dry it out shoot the rest of the course of fire and then how my cleaning routine is is i uh, use a jag and i run a jag with um, solvent on it uh, about 25 times i'll run five wet patches and then i'll dry it out and then my last is alcohol um, to make sure that there's no solvents because solvents actually is what really deteriorates and breaks uh, down the barrel if you leave it in there um, and uh, i think I've read where studies have found is like overcleaning your barrel. Overcleaning can hurt your barrel, which is, I would say, you know, um, uh, true. But I, I, there's, I mean, just so many variables with cleaning that it's hard to really put, you know, uh, really put yeah, it and, a finger on it. Yeah, and and I would say it depends on what you're cleaning it with too. You know, what chemicals yep. are you using? So, yeah, I rarely use an actual copper defouling chemical. Um, but like you, I, I tend to clean a little more. Part of that is the, the Marine, the, the, but I also am not ridiculous. Like what we had to do in the Marines, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. do white glove inspection stuff, no. but I'll stick a finger in there to make sure there's no residual carbon. But, uh, the one thing I have found that I like, cause I use uh shooter's choice stuff is they have a rust prevent. Now, I don't know. Um, I know California is not high in humidity, but um, I started this when <coughs> I was living in Houston where they have this rust prevent. It smells almost like um, suntan lotion. It smells really? awesome. Yeah. But I'll spray a patch down after I clean and I run it through my bore and I leave it in there because it it is exactly that. It prevents rust. Um, and I'll, I'll take that same patch and run it over the top of the barrel, whatever the steel parts are just to keep the rust and corrosion away. And then before I shoot, I'll run one dry patch through, takes it all out and, and good to go. Um, so, and if you shoot any ciders or like you do a confirmation of zero, then it'll burn all that stuff out and you're good to go. Now you said a two day national match. How many rounds is that typically? Uh, so I, I usually plan for 250. That's what I'll bring with me. Um, typically, you know, you have 180 to, I've seen it all the way up to, to, uh, 220. Um, sometimes you go to a match that has 18 stages. Sometimes you have 20 or sometimes you have 22. It just depends on the venue and the match flow. Uh, but roughly, you know, you, you, you can expect to shoot about 200 rounds, and then I always bring an extra um, thirty to forty rounds uh, to if I if I show up on a Friday to confirm trajectory, make sure my zero is good, make sure my zero is good from travel, you know. Um, and uh, in the case that you know I need a reshoot for a stage because um, target goes down or you know maybe a bad bad stage brief, you know I I, I bring a little extra, but I, I typically plan for uh, two hundred fifty rounds. Do you have a, a personal formula? Like I have 
when I shoot pistol, I have, I have created a, my own personal formula for determining how many extra rounds I need to take with me. Do you have anything like that for your competition? No. So like if uh, I would say that, um, if all back plan in, in terms of like, all right, so the course of fire says if you shoot exactly every 100 rounds, cause they'll, they'll, they'll announce this about a week prior. Um, it's like, Hey, expect the round count to be 190. If you get all your rounds off and then, and then I'll back plan. Okay. So 190, maybe 10 rounds plus five to side in, you know, because I'm going to, I know I'm going to chase my tail, even though I shouldn't. Um, so that's brings another 15 and then, uh, bring another 15 to practice or confirm trajectory. And then another 10, uh, in the case that I, I want, I need, I need to do a, a reshoot for one stage. So then that's okay. how I, that's how I'll add on to whatever the round count is. Okay. Do you, do you always, let me back up. Do you always have to laze the targets at these matches or do they give you the distance to the targets? So the, the great question the tip, it depends on the match style. Right. And I think this is why I really love the NRL hunter. When you go to like a PRS, a precision rifle series match, that's, and, and I would say that's very common right now with the style of matches that you go to, whether it be local or a national level match. Uh, is a pre precision rifle series sanctioned match. And typically what happens is the targets are all known distance. When you, when you get to the match, uh, a match director will hand you a um, course of fire uh, booklet. It gives you all the ranges and stuff like that. And what I typically do 99% of the time, but I would say not 100 because it, there's definitely times I've, I haven't listened to my own sauce but uh, I always bring a rangefinder, and I always range my own targets. Um, that's super important for just an, any kind of rifleman aspect is making sure that you you range your own targets and not believe what the book says. Because you know I've been in um, I've been a match director, and sometimes you know my match my match book or my ranges aren't right on one or two stages. Um, so those are for like PRS NRL style matches. Now the NRL Hunter because it is blind stages that's when you have to range on the clock there are also team team matches like um uh sniper adventure challenge uh, competition dynamics uh where uh they're kind of like um you know uh find it range and engage it. you have to lay them on the clock so just different style styles of matches out there based off of the league that you're shooting under okay yeah i thought i'd seen somewhere i i started to get into prs when i found the whole pistol uspsa thing and i was like well that looks like fun so i've been doing that for a few years um now what what are you using for a laser rangefinder so right now my go-to is a terrapin x um it's probably one of the most uh i would just say versatile rangefinders but it's probably one of the most um uh technological advanced rangefinders in terms of uh, the Bluetooth capability to uh, a bunch of different softwares and uh, you know, whether it be a uh, Kestrel, um, whether it be a ballistic app, like my Hornady app. And um, I've actually um, got a, the new Garmin Delta uh, pro with ballistics in it that it links up to. So when you range it, it'll automatically kick that over to your watch and it'll display a firing solution, which is pretty cool. Is so that's that why my... you looked at your watch when you said that? 
Yeah, it's it's actually an Apple Watch right now, but um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, but I've got a watch coming in that 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 has that to 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 test it out. Um, and uh, but some of the guys are already running it. Some guys that I've shot with the in the NRL Hunter Hunter series. Um, but that's my go-to. My backup um, is a Leopold TBR I with X, I believe, twenty-eight hundred. And then my tertiary, this actually was my backup for the longest time, was a uh, Nikon 4K Black. Now that thing, it's like $350. You can buy it on Amazon. Probably one of the best budget rangefinders. Um, it's like even handheld, it's been, it's like gone toe to toe, like accuracy wise. Um, and and just getting repeatable ranges um, to my, to, to my $2,000 Terrapin X. The downside is the glass quality is pretty shitty. Um, so, mm. you know, one of the things that is nice about the Terrapin that I utilize it for, for, especially for NRL Hunter is even though it's a monocle, I actually use it as an observation device as well. Uh, so my first two NRL Hunter matches out of the, um, 16 stage or 36 stages that I shot, um, I only had a hard time finding one target, um, even using a monocle, huh? Even using a monocle. Yeah, because of the glasses okay. is so superior. Um I wouldn't say superior, just just for a laser rangefinder, the the glass is really, really good um compared to your generic rangefinders out there. Um but uh if you've got, you know, a good set of binos and stuff like that, uh you know. Now is it well, because the glass is so good or because you're a trained observer? Ugh. <laughs> i had to say it. that that's a good question um i, I would say a combination of both uh because i've okay. ran into issues with um with some range finding or some 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 glass where i couldn't i just couldn't see it you know um the wow. the, the color of the glass and the color and the color scheme of the environment at that point in time it just didn't make those targets pop, you know, where you jump on another glass, you can immediately tell the difference. So it's like, it's okay. like, I know, I know something's there, but I can't really pick it out. So like in my head, I'm like, okay, it's probably nothing. But then I, you know, I jump over to another piece of glass or maybe I jump onto uh, my rifle scope and realize, Oh shit. Like that is something I should have lazed it. Wow. So do they, uh, during NRL Hunter, do they make those targets challenging to find? Yeah. So uh, the last, the NRL Hunter Grand Slam um, up in Colorado, uh, Grand Junction at a place called Cameo, really great venue. Um, Scott Satterley is a match director, probably one of the be best match directors around. And um, the way he set up his targets is he doesn't paint, he didn't paint any of his steel. And, and, and this is August, right? August, everything's already dried out and dead. Well, the targets blended in perfectly with the rock that's out there, all rustic and stuff like that. So really your, your brain was really focusing on looking for like outlines and hard edges from T posts. Um, uh, but sometimes you'd see a T post, but like, you'd be like, that's a T post, but I don't see anything on top of it. Well, on 10 bytes, you, it doesn't look like there's anything on top of it, but you get down behind a rifle scope and you see every little detail and you're like, Oh Jesus. Um, uh, so I ran into uh, a situation like that, but every match director is different and every environment's different. Um, there's another stage, uh, uh, match that I went to, um, even though the targets were all blind, they were all painted. Uh, 
So immediately, you know, they stuck out because the targets were white, right? So immediately, you know, in a sea, a sea of green, all you see is a bunch of white targets. So um, at that point, you're just lazing it on the clock and and uh, and shooting them. Are there any? Because I'm not, I'm not in this. I haven't been active in this for a while. Are there any rifle scopes that have lasers that are worth a damn? The only laser range finding rifle scope that I, I uh, am familiar with is the Swarovski DS. Uh, I know there's a couple out there, um, but the, the, the DS is nice. Uh, Scott Google is heavy. The depth, downside is that um i it's not adjustable at least i don't think it is what i remember when i messed with the ds last time is that it has an illuminated or it has a duplex reticle but based off of the ballistics that you have programmed let's say i'll range something at like 400 yards a little red dot will pop up on your crosshairs to tell you what you need to hold for that target does that make sense Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it tells you what your hold is inside your reticle with a little red dot. So I take it then you just put that red dot on the target. On the target, pull the trigger. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. You say, but you say Swarovski, and I immediately think I need a second mortgage. <laughs> yeah. I want to say that that, <laughs> so, that scope is probably four to five grand. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. That's not cheap. I'm looking up your the scope you use. Oh, the Collis 525. Yeah, I like that. It's a 56 millimeter objective lens. That's nice. But I'm curious, <laughs> what's the reticle in that? Oh, AMR reticle available. Hmm. Well, so what, the what reticle, reticle do you use? The reticle I use is a Skimmer Four, uh, which stands for Shannon K milling reticle, and it's the fourth generation. Um, you know, for competition, I, I feel like it's a really, really great reticle. I love the uh, windage line um, specifically for uh, wind holds and uh, movers. I think uh, just the simplicity and the indication of every two-tenths marker uh, along the windage line is is uh, pretty phenomenal. You know, it's very rare that I actually use the holds, uh, even though it's nice. Um, but, uh, you know, typically based off the stages, I do have time to dial in between, even with a 90 second stage, um, you know, unless I'm going for like a, a speed, that's when I'll hold. Uh, but I'd say I only use the actual like vertical post below one 60, 70% of the time. Okay. So you prefer to actually dial in your dope? I do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it seems to be a personal preference type of thing. It is. Yeah. You know, every, you talk to every different shooters and their, their application. Um, I know there's a lot of shooters that just love the standard duplex, um, like a standard, you know, no Christmas tree whatsoever. Uh, some of the best shooters right now in the precision rifle series came up with a reticle. Um, they're from Oklahoma cause they dial for everything. They dial for both elevation and windage. There's no need to use a, uh, uh, yeah, so that is the Skimmer One. Okay, is yep. that the one you use, or is that no? I, so I use this SKMR Four. Well, Dagnabbit, and I'm not seeing it there. Uh, it's right there to the left, to the left of the Skimmer. Oh, yeah, yeah, the one with the four behind it. Let me scroll down here, see if I can. That's 
Now, okay, so here's my question for you. Now, I, I mean, I, I'll say I'll use this terminology. I grew up on the mill dot duplex. Yep. Uh, which is way less busy, which I still prefer today, actually, because it's less busy. Um, how do you like this? I, I like it a lot. And, and what I like it is because um, if you notice, it's a it's a gradual tree. Um, yes. Whereas, you know, typically just from a from a actual user standpoint. When you when it comes to understanding recall management and having to spot your own shots, uh, the busier the bottom is, the more that you have to get the reticle out of the way to be able to see exactly where your shot goes downrange, right? Exactly. Um, and this is why some reticles uh, that are used in the military are actually used in the competition space because of that fact. Um, it's not not the fact that it's too busy. It's just it's 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 in the way, right? When you, when you start yeah. looking at sh uh, shooting smaller cartridges like a 6BR, 6BRA, uh, and you're you're shooting at, you know, dirt, um, at 300 yards away, um, you know, you don't want, you don't want anything. You almost just want your dot there so that when you shoot, you can see exactly if you do miss, um, you know, where that bullet goes. Um, so I, I like it. Um, like I said, I, I typically, typically only use the, uh, windage line. Um, it's very rare that I actually use the, uh, elevation. So like two or four mils, but in the case that I do have to, uh, use like two mils, uh, holdover. Um, it's nice to have those half tenths to full mil in the case that I need to, you know, uh, hold for both elevation and wind at the same time. So I'm not holding off in the, in the, in the, uh, midair, which I've, okay. I found myself doing back, um, back in the day of the Marine Corps, right. Where you had a qual, it was called multiple threat engagement, max point. Uh, mul yeah. Uh, it's called mill holds and you couldn't touch your turret. You had five targets and you had targets from like 300 all the way out to 700. Well, you get out to six, 700 and a 10 mile an hour crosswind with a 308. Now you're, you're starting to hold off the body where you're pretty much holding off in the mid, mid, mid space, right? Correct. Uh, for your elevation hold. So that's the only downside to uh, a, a mill dot duplex uh, when speed is a factor. Um, but, uh, you know, we just had a conversation, uh, with Owen Mulder about this in our last podcast about observation and understanding what the brain, um, in psychology can actually focus on, especially when in high stress environments. And, you know, um, I'm a big believer, especially with military sniping with there's no, there's nothing wrong with dialing for your target and holding the center of the reticle. Totally concur. Yeah. Let me go ahead. And... Yeah, that's not as busy as some of the reticles I've seen. And and when I say busy, I just mean there's a lot of, I'll use the word clutter in my field of view. And I don't like all that clutter in my field of view. Yeah. That one's not too bad. Uh, so do you do, um, do you dry fire? I do. Um, I haven't dry fired lately enough to, you know, but I would say typically when I'm, when I'm in a pretty good routine, uh, with dry firing, I'll dry probably, uh, 10 to 15 minutes a night, um, on one of the guns and yeah. And, and what is your objective? 
uh, to marry up my breathing and my trigger control um, to make sure that, you know, based off of that rifle and how I set the trigger poundage uh, to make sure that obviously when I get down to my shooting position. Um, okay. So let's say uh, my, my main goal is to make sure that I, I am pressing that trigger without disturbing the rifle. So ultimately, but then understanding that breathing and firing under natural respiratory pause um, goes hand in hand with your breathing. Uh, meaning, you know, uh, you don't want to fire when you're, when you've uh, at the top of your breath, essentially. Um, but depending on the trigger weight, right? Uh, this is one thing I learned in the Marine Corps is, um, you know, when you're running a three to five pound trigger, what I like to do is I like to essentially take the load off of the trigger as I'm exhaling so that when I get to the bottom of my breathing cycle, I only have about, you know, maybe a pound, a, a half a pound left, right? Rather than going to the bottom of my breathing cycle and trying to pull all three pounds at the last second. For competitive shooters, as like a, I run like a ten to twelve ounce trigger, um, knowing exactly at what part of my breathing cycle or at the bottom of my breath I can actually let off the remaining slack after I felt my wall. Uh, so that's typically uh, my goal. And then obviously for positional, um, I'm working on ways to uh, really minimize my my dry fire or minimize my wobble zone. Um, figuring out what what ways my body um, in terms of applying natural point of value muscle relaxation, whether I like a double kneeling for this specific height or, you know, reverse kneeling, whatever the case might be. And that's where I see one of the big benefits to dry firing for what you compete in is the different positions and be able to work it out and find what's the most solid position for you. Yeah. Um, you know, dry fire, takes away half the battle when when it comes to shooting off your belly and what i mean by that is um you know when i'm building a shooting position uh, i'm looking at building two things i'm building stability but i'm also building my position suitable to manage recoil uh, because if my position is stable but if i take a shot and i come off if i come off target and stuff like that it's still not a good position because as a shooter i'm not able to follow up and see exactly where I, where I hit, um, in the case I made a bad wind call or even a bad trigger press. Right. Um, you know, I feel we've come a long ways from relying on our spotter and even in combat, uh, from, you know, what I remember, you know, you want every gun in the fight. Um, you know, you don't have this unless, you know, you have this one target, then you do have a spotter. But in the case that, you know, you're in troops in contact and stuff like that. You want every gun, um, out there shooting. And the last thing that you do have as a, as a, as a sniper is another spotter, you know, cause typically you're ATL or whatever's on the gun too. Right. So, um, even though at the schoolhouse, I'm sure when you went through or when you taught same thing, what I taught is we taught with having a shooter and a spotter. Um, and I would say that's the, even though there's a, a good dynamic behind it and a good reasoning, uh, what Kalen and I try to teach is making sure the shooter's uh, um, self-sufficient on his own to spot his own impacts. Okay. Interesting. Um I mean, obviously, if you're in combat, you definitely need all guns in the fight. That I totally get. Um, 
but I'm assuming they're going to be shooting and they're going to have an M4 or something along those lines, some type of semi-auto. Yeah. Uh, so the way that we employed uh, our TO was uh, one bolt gun and then the ATL or someone in the team was carrying an um, M110 SAS. Okay. Um, that was a, that was a new and I, and honestly, so this was 2016 uh, or so or when I operated, that was 2013, 2014. So it's been seven years. Um, I want, I know the Marine Corps has Mark 13s now. Uh, so I want to say that, uh, the team is at least bringing a Mark 13 and a SAS. Uh, I, I don't really see a use for forties now other than like nostalgia, nostalgia reasons, but you Blasphemy. know, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and i've talked to i've talked to snipers that you know they they could have they could have went especially in the during the invasion uh they could have easily carried um you know mark 12s or or m110 sas but like just something about the fact that they they grew up on the 40 it's like i'm gonna kill someone you know with this with this gun that i've trained my whole right. career with like why right why, like even though strategic or you know tactically it's not you know it, it's there's no really benefit to it in an urban environment but it's like just still the right so that, that's why i have a remington 700 and 308 right it's exactly there i'll always go. have a lot of us have a 308 with a 20 to 24 inch barrel in my in my in my in my uh arsenal yeah so. i have a 700 sps with an a3 stock on it awesome let's roll <laughs> but anyway, you got a, a fixed 10 power too. What kind of optics uh, you rolling on that? No, I do not. Actually, I have a, a, a less expensive optic. I have an Osprey scope. Okay. Um, that I've run through the gamut. Um, tracking is not bad for the, for the price. It's good. And it's actually the one I shot a 199 with 11 nice. at 600. So I know it'll hold, you know, it's uh, the glass is clear. It's probably like a two fifty three hundred dollars scope. Nice, but it's a uh, I have a four to sixteen and a six to twenty four. Cool. So yeah, I definitely don't do the whole ten power fixed. If I could get my hands on a Nurdle, that might change things. But yeah, you know, uh, again, that would just be for nostalgic purposes. I had a you know, I had a former eighty five forty one. He was he's probably. Uh, closer to my generation than yours. Um, he would, he would technically have been my senior. He had actually trained my senior Marines, but he, we were in the same unit. We had met each other through a union. He had messaged me and, uh, he is still rolling around with his bolt gun, uh, a fixed 10 power. He's like, Hey bro. He's like, I want to get into what you're doing. He's a contractor right now. And he's like, I still have a, you know, I've still got a us optics MS 10, which is the essentially, uh, uh, Unertal just for, uh, under U.S. Optics, and uh, he's like, "Should I stick with this, you know, a fixed ten power, or should I get something variable like like you're using?" I'm like, "You should not sell that scope. You should definitely hold on to it." But I would definitely think about upgrade <laughs> upgrading your rifle scope, yeah, for sure, if you want to get into this. <laughs> yeah, and you know we we actually had John Unertal come to the schoolhouse, okay, one one year for. Cause we started the, it used to be the instructor course. Mm -hmm. And then we changed it when I was there with Morris 
uh, Skiles, Tim Hall, and myself. Um, I don't think Greg Tyler had gotten there yet. Um, or maybe he had, I don't remember. But anyway, we had John Unertle come down for the advanced course. And one of the things that disappointed me, I, I love the guy. Um, but what disappointed me was uh, I had asked about, or someone had asked about, I thought the fine adjustment being half minute of angle, could we change that to a quarter? And he said, there's no way to do that reliably, which disappointed me because I actually took um, masking tape and went around the turret and marked the halfway point so I could kind of fine tune it. And it, it does actually work on that scope. It will make an adjustment. Yep. So I was, I was disappointed that, that that was his answer because a half minute of angle is too gross of an adjustment. It, it is for what we do. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I, um, you know, I've been, I've been recently kind of like digging into uh, forums and what people are talking about, even with a class that I did. Um, and they're like, Oh, as long as I, as long as I'm on, on, on target, uh, I'll be good, you know, 20 by 40 human. It's like, well, that's not the point of precision rifle shooting, right? Mm -hmm. the, the the point of, of shooting with precision is putting that bullet exactly where you want it, right? Not like, oh, I've got, I've got all this room for error. Like, no, that's not, you're missing the point of, of shooting that target with intention, with precision, right? So like, if I can, if I can get that target to within, if I get my bullet to within, uh, you know, a quarter of an inch of my intended point of aim, I'm freaking happy. Right. Uh, at, uh, you know, 800 yards. It's not like I want to, I want it like, Oh, I'm within four inches of my intended point of aim. I'm good. Well, then that's when you start compounding errors in your head. Like, Oh, well I can just fudge this and be good. I can start fudging this. And the next thing you know, you know, you're barely missing the edge of your target or whatever the case might be. So, um, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of understanding that aspect of when you get behind a precision rifle, you are putting that bullet exactly where you want to not I've got this much. I've just got this much plate to hit. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm not a fan of mill scopes because a 10th of a mill to me is still too, too gross of an adjustment. That's my, that's my hurdle to switching to any type of mill scope i actually the scope i have is an eighth of an moa adjustment wow yeah that's that is how fine i want my gun to adjust and this is how i look at it i look at it as i am the weakest part of this system my my ammo is hand loaded not my 308 because federal makes amazing match ammunition for the 308 rifle so i shoot that stuff and i can you know I can shoot between a quarter and a half MOA out of my gun consistently. So I'm good with that. I hand load my 6.5 Creed, so I'm about 0.32 MOA. So the gun will shoot. The scope is, is very accurate, so I can fine-tune it. Now I just have to do my part, and I figure the closer I can get that gun to shoot perfectly center, then it makes my job as a shooter easier. Agreed. As long yeah. as I, as long as I'm doing what I'm doing, I should be good. 
and that's where a lot of I see shooters is it's fine. You know, if they've got the means to do it, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying you can't go out there and, and not buy a $10,000 rifle. Um, but you have to invest in your training as well. That's what I'm trying to get at. You know, you yeah. can't be a, you can't have a $10,000 rifle and be a $10 shooter. <laughs> right. Totally um, agree because that's it, a $10 rifle. Yeah. That's that becomes, you just, it, it it, it, you just turned it into a $10 rifle. That's right. Yep. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned that they have the Mark 13. I had to look down to see where my notes were. Um, what are your thoughts on the Mark 13? Oh, man. You're going to get me in trouble here. <laughs> so the, the Mark 13 300 Win Mag, uh, it's a great cartridge. The 300 Win Mag in general is, a, is, is probably, again, like the 308, probably uh, a very well-rounded cartridge in the sense of killing things in long distance. Um, but I would say that the, 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 the stretch and the stretch that you're getting with the 300 wood mag versus some other cartridges out there, um, the modern cartridges is very, very minimal. Uh, meaning I think the, the max effective, I think they're, they're, they're saying with the Mark 13 is about 1300 yards, you know, so you've only increased the distance in theory off the books, uh, by another 300 yards uh, between the M40 and the Mark 13. Um, I think there's a, a lot of, it's a step in the right direction, um, but I think that uh, there are definitely a lot better cartridges out there uh, to um, equip uh, our Marine Corps snipers with. In your opinion, what would you have gone with? Ooh, um, I think something somewhere around like the 300 norma 300 prc um those those cartridges right now based off of the bullet selection and, and what those those cartridges are designed for um would would have really um i think they would have done a better job for uh, the uh military service members or the military snipers um the 300 prc is designed to utilize longer bullets that again, I think that's a big misunderstanding with uh, a lot of shooters. Like, well, the th doesn't the 300 Win Mag and the 300 PRC are the same? I mean, yes, they are the same, um, but the 300 PRC is designed because of the advancements of bullet technology to be able to push longer bullets. Um, whereas you are stuck with, you know, a mag length to a 300 Win Mag with that specific rifle or it's specific cartridge um and just because of the case design so right and that i think that's what people forget about is it may be the same caliber but that doesn't mean the cartridge is the same that's right so that's something to take into account so the cross section will be better on the longer bullets give you better yep. bc um so let's I'm going to bring up something that you had mentioned in since we were talking distances and all of that. You'd mentioned in one of your, I think you did an entire podcast on it. As a matter of fact, how milling is a legacy skill. Oh yeah. Um. So where that where that comes from is, 
the fact that when Kalen went through cyber school and taught at cyber school, when I went through cyber school and taught at cyber school, it was a very single point of focus in, in, in the curriculum um, where um, I, I, I don't see the, the practicality behind it because of, again, the advancements of technology. And again, I know, you know, even though we shouldn't rely on technology uh, enough, um, you know, uh, but I still don't think it should be a, a complete emphasis in, in a curriculum. Um, whereas, you know, you can still accomplish very similar like tasks or even more tasks uh, by integrating max point blank, mill holds, um, barricade shooting, uh, rather than 10 quals of the same thing on your belly, sh milling out a target, you know, that's standing just like this in front of you. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, perfectly squared edges. Right. Um, and when you're in the prone, because again, when, when you're in, in combat, your target's not standing still, your target's not facing at you the whole time. And you're probably not going to be in, in a very comfortable prone shooting position. You're probably going to be set up in a tripod, if you you've built a hide um, and, you know, now try milling a target that's moving off of a, you know, off of a tripod kneeling sitting position. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it starts to get really difficult. Um, Very sketchy. And <laughs> so I think should, should Marines know how to mill a target? Absolutely. Should Marine Corps Scout Cybers know how to mill a target? Absolutely. Um, should it be a, a evolution that they spend, um, I want to say 14 training days on. No. I, I agree. Yeah. I, I totally yeah. agree with you guys. I think yeah. it's a good to know skill. Um, I think there are better ways to do it. Like you're saying, whether it's a, a spotting scope with a mill relation or some type of mill reticle in there, there are better ways to do it if you want to know how to do it. But yeah. I totally agree. I mean, look, when, when I came through and I was an instructor, there, there was no over-the-counter laser rangefinders. You know, you couldn't do it, couldn't get it. So luckily, when we were instructors, um, the staffian or the chief instructor was able to get a hold of a, la a military laser and we would confirm all of our targets on the instructor staff with that. Nice. So we can make sure that we, you know, everything was correct. So that was a good thing. But nowadays, I mean, I mean, literally I could go down where I could get on Amazon and buy one of a thousand and have it delivered in two days. So why, why do I need to know or rely on something that's unreliable? That's right. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And, and it's funny too, because there's a lot of instructors that I see in the space I follow on Instagram and stuff like that, that they, 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 they put it in their curriculum. Like they're teaching some kind of magic sauce, you know, it's like, no, you know, it's not, it's not that difficult. Like you go on YouTube and watch someone do it. I mean, even with trigger cam now, which is phenomenal. Um, you know, you could literally just, uh, you know, have someone do it like, Hey, this target is 20 inches and I'm just going to measure it and then do the math and then that's it. Right. Um, so I guess I could see, you know, curriculum wise, why it'd be, be nice, but if that's a single point of focus, you know, um, guys, 
I, I even know guys that have tr- in the, the, where this comes from too. Is like, I see guys and, 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 uh, riflemen struggle with even managing a rangefinder with their kit, right? What the process is to, okay, I've got a target at unknown distance. How do I now get the distance to that target? Whether it be lazing it with a rangefinder. I mean, typically we'll, we'll get for, so one of our qualifications for not even, we don't even call it a qualification, we call it a evaluation. One of our evaluations is uh, um, engaging targets at unknown distance, utilizing a uh, laser rangefinder. So we give them a rangefinder, whether it be ours or, you know, we tell them to bring their own. And we're just watching them manage their equipment with that laser rangefinder and not getting an accurate range to target because they, you know, are trying to freehand it, but the target is only like two MOA wide that has no backstop, right? And the target's only like 300 yards away. So they're lazing behind it. And they immediately see, well, even though the target's 350 and, you know, or the, even though the target should be 300, but you lane 350, that, you know, 0.3 or 0.4 difference, if you're not making a good press, you could just go easily right over the target. Absolutely. So, like, you know, getting the proper range to the target is, is just important, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you could spend your time more wisely instead of the mill relation formula on wind reading and external right. ballistics. Those are the two big ones. Yeah. You know, how's your, and you know, then you know what your gun's going to do in certain conditions. And if you can read the wind and all the different stuff going on, your propensity for a first round hit just goes, just increases, which is exactly what you're trying to do. That's right. So how big are you guys on? Um, I assume, well, let me back up. How big are you guys on cold bore shooting and knowing what your cold bore is at different ranges? Um, that's a great question. So every morning for class, and I was actually, it's funny that you, I was actually looking, writing down uh, 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 content ideas. And one of the content ideas that I, I definitely, because it is hunting season, um, I want to do is track, how to track your cold bore, right? Accurately. Um, and how do you apply it in the field? But, uh, the way we do that is, um, at our courses is we have every shooter shoot, um, the very first round of the day and then followed up by a three round confirmation group. Um, so essentially what they'll do is, um, the very first thing we get, we give a safety brief in the morning, like, Hey, you're going to shoot this target. And then on the group to the right, you'll shoot a three round confirmation just to make sure that in relationship to your cold bore, right? Your, your, your group, your cold bore is in a half MOA because your zeros off essentially. Right. Does that make sense? Because yeah. sometimes the shooters will just shoot one shot and be like, well, I'm, I'm like one and a half MOA. And then they think that, okay, well they need to apply that in the field or like the next day on a lot on, on a live shot, but then they're a minute and a half off because there's zero somehow walked. Right. So we want to make sure that, okay, what's your actual cold bore from your zero point of your rifle. Um, and then that's how we have them track it. Now, as far as applying it, what I like to do is if I know my first shot is typically, uh, a, uh, and I only like to work elevation, windage is one of those things that um and 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 honestly i haven't seen a cold bore more than a minute 
uh, in any of the rifles that I've shot or have seen shooter shoot. Um, but uh, typically what I'll do is I'll dial the offset into my dope if it's elevation issue. And if it's a wind, I will just still call the wind as is without okay. any influence of my, of my, uh, my um, X dispersion. Okay. You mentioned moving targets in competition. Um, how many, how many times do you run into moving targets in competition? Not that that's very rare. Probably one, one every five matches that I shoot. Um, it, it, based again, based on the venue, based off the match director's um, ability to obviously know a uh, shooting moving company. One of my really good friends out here, Pete Knipe, and I'm not sure you probably listened to one of those podcasts if you listen to all of them. He was on here and we talked about um, a new series that he was standing up. Him and I are really good friends. He lives out in Cody. He stood up a uh, training uh, or a, a long range shooting kind of group out here called WPR uh, Wyoming Precision Rifles or Western, sorry, Western Precision Rifle. And um, he builds, he fabricates moving targets. And what's nice mm. about that is, um, you know, when he's uh, doing any kind of modifications on the moving target system, he'll bring it out to practice every Wednesday and we'll shoot at it. So I get, I get a lot of good, good um, training on moving targets. Um, that being What's said, uh, typically 500 is what we set it out to four to 500. Um, and we, he typically sets it right at about two to three miles an hour. Okay. Um, sometimes four, uh, de depends on the distance of the target. If he pushes that all the way out to 500, he'll use a full size IPSC. If he keeps it in at like four, he'll use a 50% IPSC or maybe like a 16 inch, um, uh, steel plate like a uh, we have a uh, jackalopes out here because of wyoming so we have a uh, sometimes he'll put a jackalope steel target that's about 16 inches wide out at 400 which is four moa okay. four moa target moving at about three mile an hour which is pretty doable um so all right maybe you have a three mile an hour crosswind going the opposite way and cancel each other out <laughs> i'm glad you brought that up so actually i, I did uh, shoot uh so this earlier this summer, um, we had, uh, he has a, he, we have a venue out here that, uh, I was able to, um, uh, lock on with the landowner and him and the landowner are really good friends. Um, but, um, uh, we started a uh, teaching class out there this year. It's called heart mountain. And, uh, Pete also runs a, um, charity match that all the donations to the, the match, both the registration and stuff like that go to, um, the special warriors foundation, special operations, uh, foundation. I think I got that wrong, I, but, um, anyways, uh, I was ROing that match because there's no sense in me shooting it because it's one of the ranges that I obviously shoot at, um, for training and for classes. So, um, I decided I was like, Hey Pete, I'm just going to help you RO. And he, he stuck me on the mover stage. <laughs> well, uh, up on top of that, the mountain, uh, it gets some pretty nice, pretty high winds and the target was at about 550 yards well the target when moving from left to right was about 15 miles an hour where the wind was to where you would just have to hold on the target <laughs> and it would offset the lead nice yeah and then and then on the way back when it's moving oh, against Lord. the wind 
you would have to double your lead because yeah. of the win. So it was pretty cool. Wow. That's a pretty good win reading lesson right there. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness gracious. All right. So we'll get into the uh, couple of things here real quick. Um, the one of the things I did listen, I, I've had another guy on here, another former Marine, Mike Seeklander, um, big name in the pistol world. And we talked a little bit about instruction. He actually put out a book that I got. Um, let's see here. He put out a book. I ended up buying the art of instruction. Pretty interesting. Um, so we had a brief discussion about it and I noticed that you and Kalen had a conversation about instruction on a podcast teacher versus instructor. Um, and uh, I thought it was a very good conversation and goes into something deeper that I think, um, whereas with the, the teacher portion being, a you could almost say you can all, I would almost classify that person as a mentor. Mm -hmm. I mean, an instructor, anybody can, not anybody, let me change that. Someone who knows a topic can get up and instruct a period of instruction on something if they know it, but that doesn't mean they can actually sit down with you and teach it to you and make you proficient at it. Does that make sense? That's right. Um, so you know, you get a, you get a class, for instance, it's a, a, a sniper school class of 32, right? Every single 32, I wouldn't say every single one of them, maybe let's say uh, uh, 16 out of the 32 all have the same like um, receiving style of information or teaching style, the way they learn, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe another five have a different, maybe another five have a different. And then there's that one or two that like, it, they, you just have to spin it a certain way for them to, for it to click. Right. So if, when an instructor gives up and, 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 um, you know, uh, starts speaking the, the instruction based off of the PowerPoint or based off of whatever the, the, the topic is, an instructor is just facilitating that. And for, for, I'd say about for those 15 students, that are just able to just pick it up as they see it or, or, you know, typically just visual or audio learners. And then just like, Oh, okay. I, I understand that. Um, but then they just move on to the, those instructors will just then move on to the next slide without understanding that. Okay. Well not, maybe not everyone has just comprehended what I just said. I feel like a teacher will, uh, understands how to read the room. And be like, okay, I'm going to say it one way and I'm going to see where it bounced off or who it bounced off to, right? Whether they're just giving me like the, the blank oh, stare, the yeah. blank stare, right? Yeah. And at, and at that, and at that point, you know, I think that what separates an instructor from teacher is that teacher then takes the time be like, okay, I realize about 50% of the room just got it. Now I'm going to take a stab at the other 50% and I'm going to say it this way and you know re-articulates it and then maybe another 25 percent are able to get it and then he sees that okay there's still another two that don't get it now he can either continue to move on or he can be like okay well let's bring it down into even a different you know barney style way of saying it um 
because at, at that point, I think what happens is the, the 15% that get it off the bat, off the first go around, they immediately are like, okay, I understand that. By the time they, they hear it a third time, they are now putting in their data bank when it's them to become leaders or teachers for how they're going to articulate it to their now junior Marines or whatever the case might be. Because one of the things that I remembered, and I'm sure this was the same thing with you and you were teaching, is that I knew not only was I teaching snipers or make, trying to make snipers, but I was m trying to make future leaders of our community that were going to eventually become the subject matter experts in their units. Because when they when they graduated and became you know eighty five forty ones or O three seventeens, they went back to their unit as the fucking the man, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and that's how they were looked know, at. Yeah, and that's how they looked at. And they are going to be kicking instruction and stuff like that. And they could have graduated the bottom of the class. Nonetheless, the the unit didn't care about that. They are now the man, and they are probably going to be kicking classes to the new guys. So, for me, I knew it was a double edged sword of making sure that okay, not only do I want everyone to get it but I want the people that do understand it and that are probably going to be teaching this to have now better ways to, to um, communicate that information as well when it's, when it's their time to be on the podium. Yeah. I mean, the, the, if you have 250 medical students that graduate, what do you call number 250? A doctor, a doctor, he's still a doctor. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's kind of like the same thing you may have 32 students that graduate that 32 may have just that 32nd one may have just made it in, but he's may, still, may. he's still an 0317 or 8541. Yeah. So he's still looked at as the expert, but it, it was a very interesting question. Um, because now I train, I teach paramedics. Okay. And, um, one of the things I teach is med, what we call med math. So it's medication math. And a lot of these guys are not the strongest in math so it takes a little while and i have found that is one of those topics where everybody has to understand or you can't move on so it requires more explanation i also teach what they in the medical field like to call wound ballistics we know as terminal ballistics so i explain what the real term is but then i talk about wound ballistics and all that but that's one of those topics where if there's one or two, I can move on and we'll talk during the break. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not critical that you know all of that in order to understand the topic. So yeah. it, it's also, I think, for people understanding when you can move on, when you cannot, when you must stop, yep. or those one or two people are going to be completely lost and yeah. they'll never get it. Yeah. So, but uh, I've also found that um, it's, not widely known i've i've had a lot of i've also had a lot of interns that were paramedics and i've had a lot of interns that were what i'll call retreads but it's not always their fault a lot of times it's they've been paired with somebody that just doesn't understand their way of learning and they only know one way to teach yeah so there's no you know you basically have a failure with an intern when it technically isn't their issue it's that that fto which we call field training officers which should be field teaching officer because it's kind of like it, it kind of goes back to what you and kaylin were talking about on one of your episodes where you know this guy may not be school trained 
sniper, but he's going to be operating with you. So teach him everything, you know, to make him better, to bring him up closer to your level. That's right. And that I see the, it's funny. I see the same thing in the medical field where they don't, they don't do that. They just want to regurgitate that one hour period of instruction and not teach them what you've learned. Yeah. Because if yeah. you teach them what you've learned, then you, you shorten that learning curve mm -hmm. for them to get to where you are. That's right. So I thought that was a good topic that you guys covered. All right. So now for the, the one controversial question. And that is, what are your thoughts on the sniper school going away? Ooh. <laughs> so, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't actually heard, heard that, you know, there, I know there's rumors of it. I have yeah. Let's let's say a sniper school does go away. Like what what are what are assets that are replacing snipers on the ground snipers? So you got drones and you've got DMs dedicated to uh, the the sniper unit. Well, guess what? You've got drones and then you have everything that just. I mean, if we're if we're talking uh, like facts here of, of what just happened uh, that came out about a week ago with the with the drone mm -hmm. strike, right? And you have a lot more of that. And what snipers do is minimize collateral damage 100%, right? Because they are on the ground. They are actually seeing through a rifle scope, not through some kind of fucking lens up in the sky. They yeah. are actually watching human behavior and identifying if that person is a threat or not. Trained observer. Um, you know, and that is with the proper utilization of and employment of snipers. And this is, I think this is where, why snipers are going away is because uh, as shitty as it is, is to say is we haven't been at war and we haven't had enough. I would just say competent because I've, I've met a lot of competent uh, field grade officers, infantry officers out there that, that I will serve with on any uh, under day. But then I've also ran into my fucking fear of, of shitheads that, that don't know what the fuck they're doing. Um, that they think because they are, uh, you know, an officer that, you know, they shouldn't, you know, um, take the uh, word of a sergeant or a corporal that's a team leader, you know, that that sergeant or team leader or corporal knows best on how to employ his team. And as long as you give them the freedom of movement to do that, right, they're going to they're, they're going to, they're going to essentially show you otherwise, but my, and I would say my best senior leaders, um, that I ever had, uh, my best platonic commander, my company commander that I've ever worked under that gave me the freedom of movement had experience with employing snipers in combat, uh, that were very successful. And it's typically the young officers that don't know how to employ us that are very skeptical of us because they just don't, they just don't know. Did they do away with the sniper employment classes? No. So the sniper, well, no, they do have sniper employment classes. And, and so this is, so this is my, this is my, this is, I guess our dirty laundry right of our community is, is that <laughs> what I still don't understand is, is I'm not sure. Did they have, um, uh, infantry officers as platoon commanders back in the 80s, back in the eighties, nineties. Uh-huh. Okay, so we have S two yeah. officers. I know. When did that change? 
Okay. So, so I, I honestly don't know when it changed. Um, I want to say it changed probably around the time that, because you guys were stay, right? Well, I spent most of my time in the recon battalions. Okay. Okay. So, so I, I, but I do know that the stay platoons and, um, I want to say they had a platoon commander, but they also, re, you know, they were basically employed by S2. Yeah. So from my understanding, STAY stands for, uh, and it's not my understanding. I know STAY stands for Surveillance and Target Acquisition. So right. prior to the Scout Sniper Platoon being titled the Scout Sniper Platoon, the secondary task of snipers was to, uh, like, provide obviously surveillance and put in ground sensors and stuff like that. So there'd be a scout side and, a, and then a, and a actual sniper side. Well, then eventually, I think in the early 2000s, it eventually became a scout sniper platoon where the sole focus was to provide precision fires on selected targets of opportunity, yada, yada, yada. Um, well, well, our platoon commanders were intel officers that directly reported okay. to S2. And yeah, so I would say, yeah, that, that's, that was like, that's the biggest gripe. It's like, why do we have it, uh, a, um, S2 officer, um, granted they're, they're great. Uh, like all the platoon commanders that I've had were, were phenomenal. One of my, one of my, my last platoon commanders, one of my really good friends, I keep in touch with him. Um, he gave me a lot of great frame of movement. The problem is, is if you look at the pipeline of a, an S2 officer, they never end up becoming battalion commanders or company commanders. They go on their pipeline right. of, of, you know, of, of, uh, of whatever Intel, you know, the, like, uh, the one, the platoon commander that I'm talking about, he, he works uh, at the Pentagon now. Um, but never does the, the way that they learned how to employ snipers ever go back into who are actually going to be employing snipers in the field, which are company commanders and battalion commanders. So that 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 all was like weirded me out, and I was always confused by that that aspect. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I know there's been a lot of discussion about. I, I guess there are some units already running their own sniper courses. Is what it seems like. Um, I mean the 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 word on the internet on the line. <laughs> no, I, I so so right now. And this is actually just talking to a few instructors recently is that um, right now the snipers are still obviously they're still creating snipers. There's a new program instruction changing uh, snipers are not seen in the new task force. I think in like 20, I can't remember what year it is. Um, but you know, essentially snipers or designated marksmen are going to be taking the place of snipers uh, in squads. Right. To, if anything, snipers will go, sh will be only a recon asset uh, capability, from my understanding. Um, that's not what I'm saying. That, and, that, and that's what I what what I've heard. Um, and again, I could I could be butchering this, but um, the recon community just stood up their own course, uh, the recon cyber course, which makes sense. Um, whereas they are strictly focusing on uh, like archership and field skills such as stalking tasks versus all the other tasks that they already accomplish in brc right so like when you go through the scout cyber basic course those marines are tested on observation land navigation 
uh, observation, communication, right? Well, uh, a basically qualified recon Marine does all that in BRC, right? So why are they going to repeat doing the same task again at the scout cyber regular course? Um, so that's why, and, and that honestly, that makes sense with the evolution of, of courses that they stand up there. And what that allows now is the, the unit, the battalion, infantry battalions to, to have more availability to send Marines to the regular basic course. Now I don't have, now that those units aren't fighting with recon to send, you know, six guys. So out of 32, you know, they're getting all 32 infantry unit guys, not 26 infantry unit and six recon. So I, I feel like that's a pro. Yeah. I mean, as long as they keep the SSBC, it is a pro. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm sure there's, there's some of our peers out there that are, you know, like, Oh no, they should be, you know, they should go through the, like, of course, like a gatekeeper side of me wants to be like, yeah, I think, you know, you should be born and bred to the scout sniper basic course. But at the end of the day, like, why not try to make the most qualified person behind a rifle at the, like when you're all, when you're all taking bullets <laughs> on, on the same roof together, I don't give a shit who's fucking school trained or not. <laughs> right. What I, what I, I mean, in a perfect world, what I would like to see is if they're going to have instructors at another sniper course, then they should be, you know, basic course qualified. You yeah. know what I mean? Yep. And then that to me would make you qualified to teach. Yep. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, at, 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 I'm not sure if you're in with like a mask, um, the 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 Marsoc Sniper School. Uh, I am not okay. So uh, what's in, in our community? There were some grumblings about you know um, that being a zero to hero course. Well, little does some of the community know that every instructor at Mask, they were all former O three seventeens as infantrymen. Okay. Right. Because, you know, the, the grumblings of some, you know, Marines is the fact that, okay, well, cause when you, you can go to Marsoc without having an O three XX MOS, you can, Correct. you can lap move into Marsoc as a, like one of my radio operators in my last deployment, who's an O six twenty one went over to uh, Marsoc passed the selection, did his pipeline, went over to mask, graduated mask. And now is, um, he's uh, essentially an SF, level one sniper, whatever they, what are the qualifications they come out with? Um, <clears throat> whereas some of our peers would have a heartache with that. It was like, well, he's not, you know, he didn't come up to the, it's like, dude, does it really fucking matter? Like, are you right. really that, like, are you really holding on to your identity that much that, you know, um, he, and essentially I would say that that 0621, even though he was an, a radio operator by trade, will still based off of your, you know, your qualifications you went through basic course will outshoot you, you know, based off the modern qualifications that mask is running those guys through, you know, interesting. So, okay. That's just, that's just the way I, I, I look at it. And, and this is coming from a guy that's a stay baby by trade. Like I'm, I mean, <laughs> like, right. I'm like tradition. That's all like, you did. Yeah. That's all I did. I, I mean, I went to the, I went to school after being a, a pig for fucking three years and like, if anything, like I have, you know, holding the community and the, the pipeline near and dear to my heart. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, my, the, the goal is to create 
someone that's capable behind a precision rifle or a long gun um, with the understanding of um, with the advancements of technology, how to incorporate that into training, not to use it as a crutch. Right. And I think that's, you know, the, the, the emphasis for modern day snipers. Okay. What advancements of technology that we have now that we can incorporate into our training to help us again, just train a lot better and be more effective with the tools that we have today. Yeah. And I'm all for, you know, MARSOC or whomever having their own sniper courses that are more appropriate for them. The only thing I don't like to see is the basic course going away for the infantry battalions because, I mean, look, you had World War II, you had Korea, then you had Vietnam. Each time they had to throw stuff together for snipers because there was no official platoon or designation. So finally, at the end of Vietnam, they got tired of it and they created one. They created the entire curriculum, you know, all of that. You'd hate to see it go away. And then the next time they need it, have to throw all that stuff back together again. Um, when they've been proven that, you know, when trained properly, they're very successful and and they're a huge asset So to the battalion commander. So uh, that's my only issue that I hope that it doesn't change. So great. Well, let's take a quick minute. Um, I know we've been on here for a bit and let's talk about modern day sniper. What is modern day sniper? So, uh, modern day sniper is, um, is a team of a millennial sniper and an old school sniper. <laughs> Kalen's going to love that. Hysterical. <laughs> no, so 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 modern day sniper um, is uh, is we want it to be not just Kalen and and Phil Vallejo. We want modern day sniper to be a um, a mindset to understand that um, as scout snipers, as traditional scout snipers, because uh, Kalen's an eighty five forty one and I'm an O three seventeen, but still the way we were both raised, we were both scout sniper instructors. Uh, we still understand tradition, but because like we just talked about the advancements of technology, um, especially in, in today's world with law in, in regards to long range shooting has really helped us just be better at killing shit, just hands down. Right. <clears throat> we see a lot of the dogmatic training and in instructors out there that, hold certain techniques and certain things uh, because you know it's what they did back in the day and like everything else nowadays is a crutch <laughs> whereas we see it as uh, an opportunity to um, speed certain things up um, such as getting your firing solution to your rifle such as understanding external ballistics such as you know knowing how to utilize today's technology to just be a better understanding of how long range works. And, you know, on top of obviously being proficient with our rifle as modern day snipers, um, you know, we incorporate a huge uh, mental aspect and understanding mind. Uh, one of our uh, taglines is mindfulness behind the rifle, uh, mm -hmm. because you and I both know that, um, one thing that I do love about shooting long range is the therapeutic aspect behind it. Right. Um, as soon as I connect to that rifle, nothing else matters. Um, 
the only thing that matters is how I drive that gun, uh, what distance it is to my target. And when I line my crossers up to that target, what my wind hole is going to be in order to connect that, you know, 140 grain projectile at, uh, at a target that's a half mile away, you know, so what do I have to do as a shooter to, you know, make all that happen, right? Cause once you connect that steel, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a pretty therapeutic feeling, right? But like I said, nothing else matters. You're not thinking about your, your mortgage, you're not thinking about, uh, you know, your angry ex-wife, you're not thinking about any, <laughs> you're not thinking about anything besides putting that piece of bullet into the air and hopefully hitting steel. And, um, you know, with that, it allows you to be completely in the moment. And now how can we take that essentially and apply it to other aspects of our life, such as our home environment, maybe our work environment, our, our relationships and stuff like that. So uh, we're, we're constantly talking about uh, breaking down our ego because um, there's a lot of ego that that surrounds just the firearms community, I, I would say. Would you agree? I mean, you've been in this yes, for, absolutely. For, for a while. Um, That's you know, actually and, why I got out of teaching when I did. It's funny that you the say that. And I, egos. I, I struggle with that daily, you know, saying that, you know, sometimes like what I see in the community, it's just like, wow, you know? Yeah. And thankfully, I always tell this to people, um, my passion is teaching and I would say teaching and mentoring. And I just so happen to teach and mentor my hobby. Um, you know, that's how I get, get around working, um, with modern day cyber full-time, um, because I'm not actually, you know, uh, you know, doing my hobby for a living. So, yeah, I would say that that's what modern day sniper is in a nutshell. Uh, we, we try to focus too on, um, staying, uh, relevant through cyber competitions, uh, uh, podcasts, not cyber competitions, precision rifle competitions so that we're teaching up to date and relevant information, uh, making sure that we're at the front edge of technology and, and techniques, uh, but also, you know, remembering our foundation as Marine Corps Scout Snipers, like nothing beats the fundamentals of marksmanship. Like that's huge, um, you know, with the growth of the precision rifle uh, sport, there's a lot of shortcuts that you can take to essentially buy, buy impacts, a lot of cartridges, heavier rifles, you know, three, $4,000 glass, again, putting emphasis on the system rather than the actual operator. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we believe that, you know, at the end of the day, like having a strong foundation um, in, in fundamentals is, is what's going to carry on throughout the life expectancy of you touching a rifle than, you know, buying the, the, the latest gear. Right. And uh, we want everyone to come through our course and come out to be just a better rifleman. Like I'm not, like if you want to be a better competitor, sure. Like I'm going to teach you to do yeah. that, but, I want you to be a better rifleman because in the case that your rifle goes down, how do you fix it? Right. Uh, one of the things that I remember being in the cyber community, the only thing I was authorized to do was pull the bolt out and take the bipods off. <laughs> right. I'm not, sure if, I'm not sure if that was the same thing. And it's like anything above that, it had to go to level one or level two maintenance, echelon maintenance. Yeah. It's like shit, you know, but now like I can, I can, I, I disassemble my guns all the time. The only thing I don't do with my rifles right now is, is chamber them, right? Which I'll, I'm sure I'll learn in the future. 
but um you know i have my gunsmith semi uh chambered um rifles and six five creedmoor i've got my own barrel vice and i uh, yeah i can put a rifle together from start to finish and um i i i was thankful that when i jumped into the civilian side of long range shooting that i found mentors that were able to teach me that because i didn't learn any of that during my during my career as a sniper nope the only other thing we could do was torque our gun that was it we we couldn't even do that because we didn't have torque oh, torque, wow. torque settings torque yeah. wrench Gotcha. Torque wrenches, yeah. So yeah, well, we had them at the schoolhouse. That's where I I use them, and I knew how already how to do it. So, but wow, yeah. Well, that's all I've got, Phil. Do you have any final comments or plugs or anything? No, Dave. I uh, thanks for uh, having me on here. Um, I appreciate it. it was great questions. I think um, you know it, it was refreshing because you know it's not um, it's it's always hard to. It's always hard uh, guys like us to talk about ourselves, right? Because it almost seems like, you know, we don't want to always feel like we're bragging, right? Um, more like, more or less just creating awareness of, right. you know, um, who we are and what we do. Uh, no, I appreciate you uh, using, uh, having us on your platform. Um, for everyone that's interested in checking out Modern Day Sniper, we've got uh, YouTube, uh, just Modern Day Sniper. Uh, if you want to uh, train with us, we do in-person classes. Just head over to www.moderndaysniper.com. And then we've got our own little social media platform called the Modern Day Rifleman Network. Uh, and that's just www.moderndayrifleman.com. And, you know, we try to build that site of, 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 to avoid all the trolls and stuff like that of long range shooting, you know, because I'm a part of like freaking 50 Facebook groups. And like right. a guy that asked an honest question about like, hey, I'm looking at, you know, shooting out to a thousand yards, what, um, you know, what optic, uh, uh, is the good one, you know, an honest question. And then the guys are like, well, Carlos Hathcock used a 10 power fixed back in Vietnam. So that's good enough for him. It's like, all right, dude. Right. <laughs> uh, right. So you, you'll, you'll find none of that in, in the network. It's pretty, it, it's pretty policed up. Not, not that we policing, but the people that come there, right. Have just, um, great, honest intentions of helping give back to the, to the long range shooting community, uh, with their, with their experience. So awesome. I have to check that out, but yeah, this is great. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I have to have you guys on again together sometime when you guys are both available. Definitely. Yeah. Kalen's on a hunt right now. So hopefully he's, uh, he's getting after it. Right. He's doing a real life NRL hunter. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right, Phil, thanks for coming on. Thanks, buddy. You have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.